Well, if you brought a Bible with you, I'd invite you to find Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, as we do a part 2 on this most difficult part of the book. Romans chapter 5, and beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. We'll touch on that sticking point today. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That's the key phrase, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses right me, you, that's me, you're in the text, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Last summer, I actually, the summer before last, I visited 85-year-old Warren Wearsby. And... uh, He was very gracious to me. He walked me around his library and showed me various pictures of some of the very impressive people in Christendom that he has known over many years. And when he came to a picture of Billy Graham, he literally stopped, almost like he had come to a place of holy ground. And he really did because he was converted under Billy Graham's preaching. And he has been a dear friend of Dr. Graham's for many years. If you're not aware of it, the Billy Graham Association put out a video here a couple weeks ago. It's 28 minutes long. If you haven't watched it, you should. I tear up every single time I've watched it, and I've watched it several times. Uh, it, but this is kind of humorous because Wearsby being 85, Graham being 95, when Jim Cimbala from the Brooklyn Tabernacle was with Billy Graham uh, a few months back, he mentioned... Uh, Warren Wearsby to Billy Graham, and Billy Graham sort of had a startled look on his face. He said, is he still alive? <laughs> this really happened. Imagine the, you know, 
the surprise of a 95-year-old wondering how an 85-year-old could still be alive. There is a generation of greatness that is slowly fading from the scene. Truly, death continues and continually passes to all men. Dr. Wiersbe wrote in his commentary on this passage, he wrote, To understand these verses, note the repetition of the word reign, which is used five times. Paul saw two men, Adam and Christ, each of them reigning over a kingdom, hence my title. Finally, note that the phrase much more is repeated five times. This means that in Jesus Christ, we have gained much more than we ever lost in Adam, unquote. Now, if you weren't with us last week, and even if you were, here's a quick review. This is what we, as we did the overview of this passage of Scripture, we cited three things. Sin and death came through Adam's initial disobedience. And we said that Adam is a type or a pattern, if you please, of Jesus, in that he imputed sin to us, while Jesus imputes righteousness to us who believe. And finally, we said those who receive, the word is in the text, Jesus will escape judgment and reign with him forever. Now, this is the most difficult passage in all of the book of Romans. And it's one of the reasons that has kept me from this book for so many years. I come, I, oh, I don't really want to preach that. Listen, I, I, mean, I feel good about this. I, in all of my studies these last couple of weeks, I came across Spurgeon, Spurgeon's introduction to this passage of Scripture. He basically punts. He says, you know, this is so deep, I'm just going to hit the high points so everybody can be edified. So I feel pretty good about that. Actually, I have to tell you that the more I study those guys who put in pages and pages and pages and pages of notes on this passage, in almost every situation, they totally get lost in the details, and they lose the power of the passage. I'm aware of the maxim, fools rush for angels, fear to tread. I don't want to be guilty of that. My quandary is, trying, is finding the balance between the 30,000-foot view of this passage and going so deep that we all drown. So after weeks of studying this, I have, and last week's overview, I'd like to just tackle four questions that sort of emerge out of this passage, okay? Here's the first one. The first one is this. It's unfair. It's not really a question, but it's a statement. It's unfair that we have to share in the blame for Adam's sin. Anybody ever heard that? This is a question, some, you know, or why do we have to share in the, and blame that? This is, this is a question Christians ask and a complaint that others ask. Why am I being blamed for something I didn't do? Now, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death passed to all men. The word so, you can't really, it's hard to translate the word. Thus in this way, death passed to all men. Has anybody ever seen the Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report? Oh, gee whiz, you know, what are you scared of? 
It's a good movie. I liked it. Anyway, uh, in, it's a science fiction, fiction movie about a decade or so ago, uh, a futuristic film uh, that as a result of the foreknowledge of three uh, psychics that they call precogs, there's a special police unit that they call pre-crime that arrests people before they would commit the crimes that they would have committed. Okay, there's the premise. It's not that great of an analogy. I just thought I'd throw it out there for what it's worth. <laughs> because in Adam, we're already criminals by nature. As someone has said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The very term sin has been relegated to the area of religion in the church. We don't hear CNN or Fox News describe evil in this world as sin. For that matter, when it, when's the last time you heard someone call you out for a sin you committed? Most Christians I know would rather point out somebody else's sin. But chapter 5 and verse 12 describes us in Adam from birth. Conception, really. And theologians debate over how sins, sin infects all men through Adam. None of them debate whether or not Adam's sin has affected us, right? Nobody, nobody debates that. It's just, it's just a matter of how it happened. Adam has been called our federal head, our federal representative. By some, he's called a seminal head. By others, as a federal head or representative head, Adam, we, we inherited Adam's sin. As our seminal head, we actually, that line of thinking in theology says, seminally, we sort of existed in Adam when he sinned. Either way, sin is, uh, is really systemic. It, it, it It passes to all men. That's what the scripture says. It's interesting because, in a sense, theologians say that we were in the loins of Adam. Have you ever heard that term before? And there is a biblical basis for it because you don't need to go there. But in Hebrews 7, there is a passage in scripture that says that Levi, who would not be born for hundreds of years, paid tithes through Abraham uh, to Melchizedek. So there is a, a sort of, it's very intriguing, actually. Are you ready to come up for air? Because I know you're thinking, can we move on from this? <laughs> but here's the cry. Unfair, unfair. How can you say, I'm to blame for Adam's sin? Well, somebody comes back and says, well, you see, um, you know, if we had been there, we'd have done the same thing. How many have heard that, right? That's really a silly argument. Because there's no way of proving that argument, right? So it's not very convincing. So if you use that argument, stop using the argument. Okay? Because it's dumb. You can't prove it. So stop using it. I get what you're trying to do here. So let me give it a try. The question, how can I 
be to blame for Adam's sin. Are you ready? Here's my try. You're not. That is, you're not going to be. You're to blame for your own sin. And in a deep theological text where Adam and Jesus are continuously contrasted, there in verse 16, you see that phrase in verse 16 where it says, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In my Bible, I wrote on the margin, me, with an exclamation point. Here, I am no longer a spectator in this passage. If you go to hell, it will not be for Adam's sin. It will be for your sin. And the scripture certainly affirms this. Look at a couple of verses here. Here's Romans. Here's what Romans said a little bit earlier. He will render to each one according to his works, right? And then Paul says in Colossians, he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. God is not going to look at you when you stand before him someday having rejected his son. He's not going to say, you're damned because of what Adam did. He's not going to do that. He'll say, you're damned because you have personally rebelled against the revelation that was given to you in my son Jesus. That's what's going to happen. The doctrine of original or inherited sin, however you want to put it, simply says that man sins, you sin, I sin, not because of the circumstances of my life, not because of my environment, not because of Satan's or the demons that are lurking about, but because we sin because we're sinners by nature. And it all started with Adam. And I have thought on this. For a long time. And I know that everything I've said thus far is not going to alleviate that. Well, how do you make me the blame? And this is how I've come up with the the thought. If, If you think it's unfair that Adam's sin has been imputed to you just because you breathe, then how is it fair that Jesus' righteousness is given to you just because you believe? You know what the answer to that is? Neither one of them are fair. They're just true. And thank God for the latter. Amen? Okay, let's take off another shot here. Secondly, how were Adam's sin and those who lived between him and the law different? I know that you're asking this question, those of you who are delving into this passage. And it comes out of verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not imputed or counted where there is no law. That's that's an enigma, isn't it? This question comes from a lack of understanding of the differentiation of sins. There is a very real concern. I certainly have it. Many of you do too. that, that That we've lost our sense, our shock, our abhorrence of sin. In fact, uh, you spend enough time with people outside of Christ, like a number of us have, and you find them describing their sin uh, around the circumstances of their life. My life messed up. My marriage is, 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 a, is a debacle. My, my kids are disarray. My job, a lot. Everything's about circumstances, not about themselves. 
Now, these things are all the results of sin in the world, but they hardly define sin. Sin in its essence, listen to this, sin in its essence is idolatry. It's open defiance of God. It is me, it is me wanting to be God. In charge, in rule of my life, my health, my wealth, and my destiny. It's me, the center of the universe. That's sin. D.A. Carson calls it the de-godding of God, unquote. Remember when Satan came to Eve, he said, look, here's the deal. If you'll do what I'm trying to encourage you to do, you'll be what? You'll be like God. So at its very essence, sin is idolatry. Even the origin of sin, which we think probably came from Lucifer, the sun in the morning when he fell, what's he say in Isaiah 14? I will be like the most high God. He couldn't imagine himself to be any more. It's idolatry. But I think we've lost our sense of the differentiation. I mean, here Jeremiah said, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They're not even ashamed. They don't even know how to blush. Are you kidding me? This is the generation in which we live. We live either in denial or flat-out ignorance about degrees of sin. Let me prove it to you. How many, of, how many of you have heard it said or you said it yourself, all sin is the same to God? Raise your hand. Yeah, you have. And you've said it too, haven't you? Just say it. You have. Well, you're wrong. That is so untrue. That is so unbiblical. Don't say that anymore. Don't stop saying that. There are degrees of sin. All sin separates. All sin has an evil element to it. But all sin has categories. I mean, even in this passage of Scripture, sin is very descriptive. It kills. It, it rains. In chapter 6, we're going to get to chapter 6. Sin can be obeyed. Sin pays wages. In chapter 7, it seizes opportunity within our flesh. It grabs that heart of yours and fle- sort of fleshes out all the evil that's there. There are many words that describe and define sin in the New Testament. There's four of them in this passage, and we're not going to delve too deeply in them, but it wouldn't hurt to understand some of these words. Translated sin and transgression and trespass and disobedience. The word sin, that's the word that most of us have, many of us have heard. It's just the word, it's the general word, harmartia, miss the mark, come up short. Don't measure up, that's the idea. All have sinned and come what? Short of the glory of God. We've all come up short. Then there's the word trespass. That's used repeatedly in this passage. It's the word paraptoma. It means to, it means to have a false step. It basically, just it's, it's your general word for an offense. But the foundational word that Paul uses, and you ought to look at it in verse 14, is the word transgression. That's the word parabasis. This word means to go beyond the border. It means to trespass. It means to enter someone's property illegally. It is deliberate 
listen to this, because this is going to help you understand this question and this thought and this why. It is deliberate disobedience to a known law. Adam's sin, his trespass, by the way, the word's used like eight times, seven, or one time it's referring to us, verse 16. And by the way, then in verse 19, you see the word disobedience in verse 19. That's a different word, slightly different. It's the word parakuo, and it, it has the word to hear in it. It literally means, it literally carries the idea of refusing to listen properly to something which I think is interesting because we're talking about Adam here, and I think about what Satan said to Eve. Did God really say, you know, you shall this and that? So you can see all kinds of, of hues, nuances, differences in the level of involvement of sin in this passage of Scripture. The point is this. It's not that Adam... You know, sin is that, oh my God, what have I just done? I, I, I can't believe I just did that. No. He deliberately defied a known law of God. Yet the law, the law of Moses, that clearly defined God's righteousness and his holiness did not come for thousands of years afterwards. Hence the question, how were Adam's sins or sin, and those who live between him and the law different. Those between Adam and Moses, while still being sinners, who sinned, obviously, because they died, right? Those people were not sinning. According to this, they were not sinning Verse 14, like the transgression. Remember that word means rebellion, defiance. They did not sin like Adam sinned. That is, they were not looking down on a known, written law and deliberately transgressing, even though they were sinning. That's the idea here. They were sinning. They did die. Now that leads to a third This is actually a question. How was the sin of those between Adam and Moses not counted against them? Since not all sin is the same, each sin's accountability and the punishment that follows is going to be different. And Jesus even said this. Remember that? And he gave that parable in Luke 12. You know, as a result of the knowledge, some will be, will be beaten with many stripes, others with fewer. They're all going to be beaten. They're all going to suffer. So he affirmed this. Those under the law had a clear... Listen, those under the law had the law, had the knowledge of God written before them, articulated, taught had a clear understanding of wrongs committed since the offenses were clearly laid out. Not so those in the pre-law days between Adam and Moses. The fact that they died means that their consciences were still bearing witness, right? It still brought condemnation. All you got to do is read Genesis chapter 6, and God is so fed up with the evil thoughts of men continuously, he wipes the world out, right? Saves one family. They were sinning. And they were dying. 
Yet this phrase, sin, is not counted where there is no law. What does that mean? I don't know. Actually, I'm going to give, take a stab at it. I, I, I'm, I'm a, this is the best I can do, okay? Grudem says sins were not counted as infractions of the law. I think we're talking about differing levels of accountability. That's what I think we're talking about here. For instance, I've been accused of many sins. And I've probably been guilty of many, maybe even most of the ones I've been accused of. I don't know. For instance, I've been accused of exercising poor judgment. Now, is that a sin? I'm asking you, is it a sin? You don't even want to answer, do you? (laughs) Actually, I think it is. Anything that misses the mark of perfection is a sin, right? Anything that misses the mark of perfection is tainted somehow with sin. Technically, it would be a sin. Bad judgment certainly falls short of the glory of God. Would you agree? That makes it sin. But what if I were accused of adultery? Actual adultery. And suppose it were true. Would that be a sin? I know you you think, oh, am I an idiot? Of course, that would be a sin. That's a known law. That's a clear, that would be a clear, that would be a deliberate violation of the known truth of God, right? But they're both sins. Poor judgment and adultery. Would you count them the same? Go like this. And neither would God. And neither would God. Let me, let me, let me make it a little more understandable here. Let's go back to my car incident last week, okay? That was a lot of fun. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. So my wife reminds me that they changed the speed limit actually back in time. But being a creature of habit that I am, I've been driving the same road for 15 years, I never saw it. Well, once the law was enacted against me and I had to pay the penalty, guess what? I saw the sign. In fact, it even has a flashing light on it. I never even knew that thing was there. Now, most of you have sympathized with me. Listen, most of you have sympathized with me about my tickets. In fact, a number of you have told me your own stories. A lot of you have told me your own stories. We've swapped ticket stories. You have even agreed with me of the silliness of that, of that whole scene where you know that, that the area where you drive through there, that's 25 miles an hour. There's a dip there. It goes down. There's not way. You have to put the parking brake on to get it down to 25 miles an hour. <laughs> what if I told you just the other day I got another one? That's right. 
Same area, same place. I wasn't about to let that stupid law keep me from going my 35 miles an hour. And sure enough, they took another picture. I got another ticket. Now listen carefully. I'm kidding. But now take a few moments to review what was going through your mind just now. Be honest. How many of you were thinking, how stupid can you be? (laughs) Come on. Let me see your hands. Raise your hands. How blatantly disrespectful of a known law can you be? And you would be right. And yet, isn't it true that most of you had the exact opposite feeling when I originally shared the story? You were sympathetic. You were laughing. You could see how the same thing could happen to you, right? What, what changed? What changed your attitude? Is it not because I went from violating something I didn't know about, from violating supposedly something that I absolutely did know about? Isn't that what made, isn't it, wasn't that the attitude different? Absolutely it was. Well, that's the idea here. Listen to me. Eternal hell awaits all those who reject Jesus. But the degree of punishment will be in accordance with knowledge. And that is nothing to laugh at. So how does Jesus' obedience save us? How does Because that's what it says. It says in verse 19, For as one man's disobedience, by many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. How, how does Jesus' obedience save us? Adam was given one simple thing, one simple prohibition, and he disobeyed Father God, right? Jesus was given one task which involved many decisions, but he always obeyed him. Remember, I always do those things which would please him, right? And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane facing his ultimate purpose in coming, he did not want to go to that cross. There was nothing in him that wanted to go, and that's why he sincerely prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then the surrender. But not my will. Your will be done. There in Gethsemane, Jesus affirmed his call, his purpose, his surrender, his obedience to Father God. At the cross, he fulfilled it, and he died. So think of it this way. Both Jesus and Adam died in connection to a tree. Adam died because of his disobedience connected to a tree. Jesus died because of his love for his Father. And for us, his sinning creation on a tree. And what did his obedience do? It brought righteousness. It brought life. So let's confess as we round the corner here in this passage. Let's confess these four things. One, 
I am a sinner by nature and by choice. Amen? I must acknowledge I will stand before God accountable for what I clearly know. I must believe Jesus took my blame or I will suffer eternal blame for my sins. And for all of you who are parents trying to, how do you make this applicable to kids? I must love my children enough that I point out their transgressions while pointing them to the only one who can cleanse them from all unrighteousness. This is a deep and difficult passage. And you do not need to understand it completely. I don't understand it completely. But you must trust Jesus completely. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to receive. Do that, and you will be saved. Billy Graham turned 95 years old recently. I hope you watch the video that came out. You will be moved. I want you to listen for one minute to this man, both the old Billy Graham and a young Billy Graham. And don't miss the very humble admittance in the middle of all of this. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The only way to the Father, Father God, is through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, why Jesus? He's the only one that was born into this world without sin. But more than that, he was a righteous one. And when you come to him, You're clothed in his righteousness. God no longer sees your sin. He no longer sees your own heart. He sees Jesus. Now, I don't understand all about it. There are many things about the cross and about salvation that I do not understand. And I'm not told that I have to understand it all. I'm told that I'm to believe. Well, there you go. I agree with Billy Graham. I'm not told that I have to understand every single aspect of theology about the imputation of sin or how Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me. But if I think it's unfair that Adam's sin was imputed to me, then what makes it fair that Jesus' righteousness would be imputed to me if I believe, if you believe? This is not about fairness. This is about truth. Christ died for you. Christ rose again for you. And you have been called to believe. That's what you're called to do.
And that means to radically place your total faith in Jesus Christ and be, as Billy Graham so beautifully says, clothed in his righteousness. And God doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for the swim, for the plunge, for a great passage of Scripture which we confess we'll probably have to have a lot of stuff unraveled later on, Lord. Forgive me for any sins in this passage and wrongly interpreting something. We recognize, Lord, that anything that isn't perfect has an element of sin to it. But we also recognize today, Lord, that there are sins that are worse. And nothing could be worse than the knowledge of Jesus who died and rose again and rejecting it. That's going to be the basis, Lord. We know this. Your word makes that abundantly clear of our entrance into heaven or not. Humble us today, Lord. Humble those who are here who are proud. We have proud people here, Lord. So proud of themselves. So proud of their accomplishments. So proud of their work and their kids and their all of this. So, so ugly. So sinful. And we have people here, Lord, that are very humble. Their hearts right now are maybe even breaking. They recognize their guilt. They're sorry. And you see those hearts. And they're confessing to you as we pray, Oh, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner by nature. I'm a sinner by choice. Thank you, Jesus, for dying and rising again for me. And if you're crying out for the first time, save me. Mean it. He'll save you. He'll clothe you. He'll change you. And he'll deliver the goods. Well, he already has. Thank you for the cross, the resurrection, and all of the abundant blessings that go along with it. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.